to the Weird Warriors podcast. I am Max. I am Rich. And on this podcast, we will be focusing on the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. However, on this episode, we're going on a special mission and we're going to cover a little book called G.I. Combat. Oh, number <laughs> number 112. <laughs> and Rich is chomping at the bit to tell you a little bit about it. And he'll start with the Intel report, though. Yep, no retroactive history this time. What's that? Two episodes in a row. But hey, Intel report. What else? Haunted Tank by DC Vertigo, a five-issue miniseries that began in February of 2009, written by Frank Marafino, art by Henry Flint. In the opening days of Operation Iraqi Freedom, Ghostly General Jeb Stewart has a new tank to oversee, but Stewart is shocked to discover that his namesake is African-American, with all that that implies. The Abrams commander is likewise hostile to having a Confederate guardian. Yes, the stars and bars do end up flying over the tank. Hopping into the title details, G.I. Combat began publication under the Quality Comics banner from October 1952 to issue 43 in December 1956. I have 13 of them. DC acquired the title of issue 44 in January 1957 and ran it until issue 288 in March 1987. I have them all. I have various issues signed by Dick Ayers, Pat Broderick, Keith Giffen, Sam Glansman, of course, Dan Green, Russ Heath, and Fred Hembeck. The Haunted Tank was created by Bob Conagher and Russ Heath for issue 87, mine signed, in May 1961 and became the second most popular DC war character after, who else? Sergeant Rock. And while it is not my intention to get into politics on this podcast, I did get curious about when the Confederate banner started showing up on the tank in the title. Best as I can tell, it was on the cover of issue 154 and it does not appear inside the book. That happens in issue 169 on the retelling of the origin story in issue 114. Listener Killjoys, let me know if I'm wrong. As a sidebar, our friends at the Checkered Past podcast had us on as guest hosts a while back to do GI Combat 119. They called us the Battling Bros, which really is a tagline we should use, start using. We joked that it was the hardly haunted tank because the general only showed up for one inconsequential panel. Not going to be the case here. This is the oldest DC comic we visited so far, so this is going to be fun. All right. Yeah, it's the oldest DC comic. Uh, if you don't count reprints, which, you know, we're not doing in that case. And before we dive into the issue, we're going to take a small podcast promo break, after which we'll get back and Rich will hit you again with the cover detail. Where am I? In the Palace of Glittering Delights. Who are you? I am Andrew Leyland, and for over 200 episodes, I have covered everything genre-related, from the obvious things that everyone talks about, Star Trek, to deep dives into the early issues of The Amazing Spider-Man, via the obscure, such as ITC's experimental science fiction dramas The Champions or Department S. It's very cosmopolitan, you never know who you meet next. In the Palace of Glittering Delights... Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. Available from Two True Freaks and via your podcatcher of choice. And we are back. So we are talking about GI Combat number 112. And as I said, Rich is going to give you guys the cover detail. Art 
by the immortal Joe Kubert. We still have 12 issues to go before Joe returns in Weird War Tales, by the way. 12 cents above the GI combat title. There's a box that proclaims the haunted tank battles, the ghost ace. A zebra-striped German fighter makes a strafing run on the steward, which is crossing a narrow wooden bridge and returning fire. Rockets fired from underneath the fighter's wings are destroying the bridge as Jeb thinks, well, the ghost that haunts our tank appear to help us now. Cover date, June, July, 1965, on sale April 15th, 1965. Little bit of killjoy, of course. Crazy aircraft paint schemes like this went out with World War One, and the plane is so close to the tank, it'll probably just crash into it. The tank's 37-millimeter cannon appears to have fired a shell through the plane's propeller arc, and the shell bounced off the fuselage. I love the physics in this universe. An aluminum airplane is impervious to a 37 millimeter shell, but a steel tank gets obliterated by one inside the book. Ah, 1960s DC war comics. I'll be killjoying this issue all day long. A little CNC. It's a Joe Kubert cover. The end. I love the detail work of the bridge fragmenting under the rocket blasts. It's a surprisingly colorful color, a lavender sky. Yellow and orange fires and explosions, pink and white smoke, and a green tank right in the middle of it. Oh, yeah, folks. Technical issues aside, this is an intense cover. Very eye-catching and captivating with a layout concept that really should have looked like a complete mess, which is a talent of Joe's. Uh, He takes something like that and just makes it beautiful. The background detail is sparse, but as Rich mentioned, the use of color not only makes up for that, but it adds to the visual appeal of the cover as a whole. I particularly like how the tank tread on one side is up in the air and the other tread is digging down in and throwing sparks. You can like hear that coming off the page, even without sound effects. But hey, I got a word balloon to make up for it. I got dialogue on the cover. I got Joe Kubert, all kinds of explosions. I got a crazy plane flying straight at the tank. Extremely happy from get-go. So with that awesome cover out of the way, man, I have I have really missed Joe Kubert on the show, guys. And everyone else is great, but we have missed Joe. <laughs> So we are going to dive into the first story, which is divided into two parts. So Rich will take the first part. You know, Rich is going to do the credits, but hey, we got a whole bunch more Joe Kubert coming up here. So we're probably going to be gushing a little bit. So Rich, internal cover story, part one, hit him. Been a while since we've waxed Joe Kubert's car, so all hail. Ghost Ace, part one, five and a half pages, written by Robert Conniger. Art by Joe Kuber. Yeah, I know I should have selected a Glansman issue on principle, but I dare say no one's going to complain too much. The haunted tank crosses a wooden bridge over a ravine at night, its crew exhausted and wounded. Suddenly a flare bursts overhead, exposing the tank to a diving German fighter that begins to hammer the bridge with wing-mounted rockets. Jeb returns fire with a machine gun mounted beside him. But attacking with the fighter is the ghost of Attila the Hun, waving a flaming sword. Where is the good gray ghost who is your guardian? Attila mocks in a voice only Jeb can hear. He is too fearful to show his face to Attila. The Hun! As the bridge begins to buckle under the fighter's assault, Jeb wonders the same thing. The ghost of Confederate General Jeb Stewart had always defended them in the past. Where was he now? The tank's crew wonders about Jeb's sanity as he screams into the night for the general's help. Flashback to that morning. The tank squadron had received a brief from their commander. The enemy had broken through in section B-18, the thinnest part of their lines. 
Your orders were to hold back the enemy until the heavy stuff arrived. We're expendable. Don't count the cost. Don't look back and don't stop. Passing a shell-pocked brick wall, an enemy anti-tank gun blasted one of the stewards from the other side. Jeb ordered his driver, Slim, to ram through the wall to get to the enemy. A second steward was knocked out as Slim obeyed. Hearing hard right as they cleared the wall, the AT gun missed. Jeb screamed at his gunner, Rick, to fire when ready, but Rick liked to take his time. The Germans missed again. Of course he does. Rick doesn't. As the squad continued on their way to Section B-18, leaving three smoking, twisted piles of battle junk behind them, Jeb remembers their CO's orders. Don't count the cost. Don't look back. Don't stop. Killjoy. Swastikas are plastered all over the knocked out. Anti-tank guns splinter shield on page six, panel one, because, you know, they're the bad guys. Indeed they are. So (laughs) comments and commendations on this first part. I got to say that the half splash page that starts out the story, again, I'm going to hit this a bunch of times when we talk about Joe Kuber. It should feel like a cramped up disappointment to kick the story off, but instead... It's used where it actually adds to the claustrophobic tension of the situation in a good way. It's it, That compression actually helps. I love it. it. That's a huge spotlight for me right there. As for the story, Conniger writes with a very engaging style and a good sense of pacing here. Even if I felt the media rest's beginning was a little jarring in its execution, I, I, I knew what he was going for, but trying to read it just with, with fresh eyes, I was like, this isn't as smooth as he wants it to be. But the rest of the story was so good. I, I particularly liked the use of narrative captions. It's a device that isn't easy to pull off with style, but he does it very well here. It's one of the things I miss a lot about older comics is indulging in these narrative captions and the people who are good at it, like Conniger is here, just makes the story that much more immersive for me. It, it makes it feel more literary. So I do have to make a point here about DC's undercurrent of Confederate apologism in these books from this period, though. Like uh, on page three, panel four, you get the line of dialogue, General Jeb Stewart, the Civil War cavalry genius, just kind of raises the hairs on the back of my neck these days. Like, I know the kind of people who say genius related to to Confederate officers. So eh, when you put this series together with weird Western tales featuring Jonah Hex, a series that I love dearly, the good guys in gray thing starts to get more than a little conspicuous. I mean, even if it's only two, there's there's still two of them. So that being said, we have a Joe Kubert drawn comic book in front of us here. So I shall close my eyes and point to what will be a spotlight panel by default. Page four, panel three. It's another beautiful example of, like I said, Joe executing what should be a cluttered mess of a panel and making it captivating and exciting instead. This five and a half pages and, you know, I, I could read this thing four times in a row. It was so good. Splash page. We have a sergeant rock sighting. So right away, you know you're in for a ride. During one of our early reprint episodes, Max said that there's no such thing as a bad Joe Cuber panel. They don't exist. Case in point, page two, panels one and three. Faces of the crew of the tank tell a story all by itself. The sweat streaming off Jeb's face as his blue eyes peer out from cross-hatched shadows on his head. I mean, my God, man. Great start to the story yeah as good as joe is at spectacle his his ability to portray emotion is almost unparalleled too so part one that's only part one folks now part two i gotta warn you strap in it's eight and a half pages 
and I'm going to read you the synopsis. So get ready. <laughs> we have Conniger and Kubert, Charlie, Mike, and it continuing the mission. Synopsis goes a little something like this. The flashback continues. The lead steward was suddenly destroyed by an anti-tank mine. As the survivors passed the wreckage, the CO's command pounded in Jeb's heart. Don't count the cost. Don't look back. Don't stop. Explosions rock the tank column as a fighter dive bombed them, and Jeb is stunned by the concussion. He saw the general appear, mounted on horseback, between the tank and the German fighter. As he clawed for the machine gun and opened fire, Jeb asked the general if any of them would get through today. I have no answer for you, Jeb, he replied. What will happen this day is hidden even from me. That's my ghost voice, because I don't want to do a Southern accent. At that moment, the ghost of Attila appeared next to the strafing fighter and attacked the general. Gigantic sparks like shell bursts fell from the clanging weapons of the ghostly adversaries as they wheeled across the flaming skies. The earth is not big enough for Attila the Hun and the good gray ghost, Attila roars. There is only room for Attila the Hun! The fight and the enemy fighter faded into the distance. Jeb and his crew collapsed from their injuries as the rest of the squadron rumbled by. Don't count the cost. Don't look back. Don't stop! When Jeb came to his senses, he was shocked to see the general stumbling towards them on foot, clutching a broken saber. The general stared right through Jeb. So... You think only you, here on Earth, battle against evil forces? The war never ceases, in light or in darkness. Have I strength to face the Hun again? Have I? Have I? The general covered his face with his hand and vanished. Jeb shivered with dread. Was that the last time he'd ever see the general? After patching up his crew, they decided to continue their mission anyway. Their squadron needed them. They passed another knocked-out steward and panzer as they hurried to catch up. And again, the orders reverberate. Don't count the cost. Don't look back. Don't stop. Crossing an open field at dusk, the fighter found them and attacked. Jeb saw Attila directing the fighter and knew he was out to get them because the general had protected them earlier. The tank drove into a thick stand of trees that the enemy's tracers set ablaze, but they managed to elude both the flames and their pursuers. Finding the bridge that led directly to Section V-18, the steward began to cross, only to be found by Attila and the fighter again. Flashback ends. We have now caught up to the beginning of the story here. The general, still wielding his broken saber, hurls himself at Attila, knocking the Hun off his horse. The battle of the ghostly titans resumes with thunder and flame. Jeb watches the duel until both stumble into the dark chasm below. The bridge is giving way and collapses as soon as the tank makes it to the other side. There was no going back now. Jeb wonders about the fate of the general and if they could make it on their own as they limped into a bottleneck draw. They run headlong into Sergeant Rock and Easy Company, who are withdrawing from advancing enemy tigers. Jeb's tank is the only one of his squadron that made it, and with the bridge down behind them, any hope of retreat was cut off. Easy Company scrambles for cover as the lead tiger of a column appears and blasts the rock wall above them. A second shell explodes right in front of the steward. Rock climbs aboard the steward as Jeb yells at Rick to fire, but again... Rick insists on taking his time. He's got a little bit of a draw, they mentioned. A third round explodes next to the steward, showering them with chunks of rock. The Germans are really bad shots, okay? They're probably the clone stock for the stormtroopers. Rick destroys the lead tank with a single shot, 
because of course he does, corking the bottleneck. So there's wreckage blocking the advancing Tiger column. Soon afterward, a flight of P-51 Mustangs led by Captain Johnny Cloud. It's, it's guest star bonanza time here, folks. So Captain Johnny Cloud, with his flight of P-51 Mustangs, conducts an airstrike on the trapped German tanks and destroys them. Later, Jeb sees the ghostly face of Attila sneering at them in the swirling smoke of the smashed tanks and knows that they will tangle again. But the general also appears and reminds Jeb that the fight isn't over. It's never over. Tomorrow will bring another fight and they'll be ready for it. So there's part two in the end of that story. Rich does have, yeah, at the sound of the tone, Rich will hit you with some killjoy. Of course I will. What happened to the enemy fighter? The general intercepts Attila and the plane vanishes. As I said in the cover killjoy, there's no way a 37 millimeter shell knocks out a German tank. 75 millimeter shells had a hard enough time doing it. DC writers often tried to call the 37 special hypersonic high velocity shells or something like that to explain their armor piercing ability. This was probably the main reason the crew eventually upgraded to a Sherman. Conagher got tired of snarky letters. <laughs> the Stuart was a light scout tank. They didn't belong in the same zip code as German armor. And truthfully, the Sherman wasn't designed to go after armor either. It was more of an infantry support vehicle. Their argument saying it was criminal putting our guys in the Sherman against tigers and panthers. Lots of derogatory nicknames for it. Ronson, after the period lighter, because it lights the first time. Tommy Cooker, tea kettle, one hit and it bruised up nicely. But it was fast, reliable, and easy to maintain. The German super tanks were always breaking down. Even the Germans were like, the Sherman couldn't compete with their tanks, but we built so damn many of them, like 50,000, and we lend-leased them to all the Allies. It was a good tank in 42, a respectable one in 43, totally outclassed in 44, and the war went on to 45. I'm rambling. Also, the national insignia on the Mustangs didn't have the stripe of the horizontal bar during the war. CNC, the general sword was broken in the first fight with Attila. How does that get fixed? Is there a sutler shop or blacksmith of warrior purgatory? It's Cubert art, so there's no shortage of excellent panels. I'll call out page eight panels, one, two, and three of the column of Stuarts passing the one that ran over the mine. And page nine, panel two, where Attila is riding the fighter's gunfire towards the general. All of the panels that of the two ghosts fighting are outstanding. Okay, so yeah, the breakup into two uneven parts at times made me feel like I should have been reading a three-part story, but the management of tension with the attrition of the tanks and so on kept things engaging anyway for me. The cameos were super fun. I was surprised to see Captain Cloud show up, that's for sure. Page eight. Panel five is my spotlight for this one. Uh, of course, the whole thing is a visual treat. But on page eight, panel five, you've got Jeb fallen over the top of the tank and the general riding by him. And, you know, again, that narrative captioning that I like so much, the first person narrative captioning as I hung half in and half out of the hatch after the explosion, like a limp sack through the swirling smoke I saw. You know, and Jeb is watching the general return to defend them. And it's just incredibly cool looking panel. The horse riding out of the smoke and materializing the plane coming down. It's, it's just great. So it's Joe Kubert. It's amazing. And the orders that keep resounding through the story. Don't count the cost. Don't look back. Don't stop. They're often just lettered in the panel, in the open air, above the tanks, like just hovering over them. It's like no one's saying them in the panel, but just the fact that 
those letters loom large over the scene of carnage that they have to just force themselves to pass by, I thought was a great touch. Again, using the comic book medium to portray something, like the visual weight of those commands. I just like that touch a lot. It seems like a small thing, but for someone like me who thinks about comic books too much, it was an excellent, excellent touch. So that's it. That's part two of the haunted tank story, Ghost Ace, with Conagher and Hubert back on the show in the pages before us. Well overdue. Yeah, well overdue. Incredibly enjoyable. A nice reminder of how good these two are when they're working together and all cylinders are fine. Next up, we got a little section called Sergeant Rock's Combat Corner. Do you want to describe it to people, Rich? We're not going to yeah. dwell on it too long. Yeah, okay. yeah it's 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 uh, the header art of Sergeant Rock with Easy Company in the background is by Joe Kubert, just like in APO Weird War Tales. Three letters to Rock that Robert Conger answered in character, asking him about weapons, units, etc. Fairly educational, but this isn't the letters page we'll get into. Onward. Yeah, I did like the touch of Conagher answering in character. That was a fun read. I mean, obviously he knows how to use Rock's voice. So that was nice to see him do a little little play like that. So after that, we're going to move on to there's there's yet another story in this comic book, people. They gave us Conagher and Hubert, and there's actually more. And since you had to listen to me for a while, we're going to let Rich finish out the stories in the issue right now. Bail out blues. Nine and a half pages, script by Hank Chapman, art by Jack Abel, Lieutenant Barney Benson, had been a barnstormer who'd hung up his wings after a bad crash. After the U.S. entered World War I, Benson enlisted in the infantry, but his commander knew Benson was a pilot and had him transferred out of the trenches and into the air service. The day he arrived at his squadron, he witnessed the skipper down an albatross directly over the field and realized they were playing for keeps around here. On his first patrol, the other pilots razzed him when he brought along a Tommy gun. He still thinks he's in the infantry. The taunting stings as he climbs for altitude. They find a flight of Fokers over no man's land and engage into a swirling dogfight. Benson was used to having the sky all to himself as a barnstormer, and now there's planes all over the place, and one's on his tail. It's the Blue Baron. He uses every trick he knows, but the Baron can't be shaken. Benson dives into a cloud bank and loses the Baron, but now he's flying blind and lost. When the clouds finally part, there's a huge German Zeppelin right in front of him, and Benson attacks. A gunner in the Zeppelin's gondola returns fire and shoots Benson out of the cockpit. You know, there's straps for that. His chute snaps open, and Benson steers it so he lands on top of the airship. As the crew climbs up ladders on the Zepp to get him, Benson returns fire until he runs dry, then tosses a grenade. The explosion destroys the airship and blows Benson off. Drifting down in his chute, he lands near U.S. lines and is rescued. Returned to his squadron, he is congratulated on his kill, but he'd done it as an infantryman, not a flyer. He'd even come back on foot. So the razzing continued. A week later, Benson is flying a solo mission in his new plane when he finds a lone enemy bomber and dives for the kill. The German gunner scores first and sets Benson's plane ablaze. Forced to bail out again, the bomber's gunner uses Benson for target practice as he hangs in his chute. Benson returns fire with his Tommy gun and destroys the bomber. As luck would have it, Benson is picked up by the same unit that had rescued him last time, and they make fun of him. Don't you ever stay in your ship? You bucking for a transfer to the infantry? 
It's worse back at base. Here comes the flying doe foot walking. A week later, a new spad arrives for Benson. As he mounts his ship, he deliberately leaves his chute behind, and all the other pilots take notice. He's either bringing this one home or isn't coming home at all. Taking off on another solo mission, Benson is jumped by the Blue Baron and his wingman over the airfield. Once again, the Baron sticks to Benson's tail and sets him on fire with his guns. Pulling alongside Benson, the Baron starts shooting at him with his pistol. Benson gets a crazy idea from his barnstorming days and slams his wings into the Baron's wings, locking the two planes together. The two pilots trade fire with their pistols until Benson wounds the Baron. The spad was doomed, so Benson uses another barnstorming trick and wing walks to the German plane and squeezes into the cockpit with the Baron. The Baron's wingman sees all of this and attacks. Benson wrenches the captured plane loose from the spad, which plunges head-on into the second enemy plane, destroying them both. After Benson lands his prize on his field, the other pilots run up and ask him to give basic training on how to fight like flying infantrymen. <sighs> Killjoy! As I promised last episode, two Killjoys lunged out at me instantly on the splash page. One is the parachuting pilot that we've already discussed. The second is the Thompson submachine gun Benson's firing. While it was being designed during the war, production didn't actually begin until 1921. Page 8, panel 2. Can that prop be any smaller? You don't need a parachute because you're not taking off, but it sure would be weird if it did. <laughs> so comments and commendations on this absolute crazy story. I've been doing this show long enough now where it finally happened. The constant parachuting almost yanked me out of the story, but the unhinged crazy pulp adventure fan in me simply couldn't resist a story where a guy ends up jumping out of a plane and fighting bad guys on a Zeppelin. It's a win all over for this reader. And that spirit, my art spotlight goes to the splash page where our parachuting pilot is exchanging fire with a bunch of enemy soldiers on top of a Zeppelin that he's about to land on and hit with a grenade. Spoilers, schmoilers. I, I don't mind a story that promises to show me a scene like that twice. Super happy. I know this story is completely bonkers on many levels. I mean, that finishing move you talked about where he hits a plane with another plane to get rid of the wingman. Like, yeah, I'm just, I'm hit you with this extra plane. This was Indiana Jones and the Rocketeer with all the volumes cranked up to 11 for me. So uh, I'll stop gushing and let you do your CNC. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, doing the backup story for a Joe Kubert illustrated issue didn't do Check Able any favors. <laughs> I liked page 10, panel one of the mid-air collision of the Spad and Baron's Wingman, which reminded me of a certain time travel story of an earlier episode of ours. But page six, panel one of the falling Zeppelin wreathed in flames and smoke with the interior latticework exposed is the winner. Oh, yeah. Like Jack Abel does a great job here. Like you said, hard act to follow. That panel was awesome. And when you were doing the synopsis, I was I was thinking like, you know, weird war. When you said the clouds part after Benson takes the, his plane into the clouds and the clouds part. And I'm like, and dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it was just an airship that was going to be awesome anyway. So up next, we have... A humor half page thing, which you know how much we like those guys. It's called Willie and Dilly script and art by Henry Boltonoff, who I have nothing bad to say about in general, except 
he illustrated this half-page comic. It's a five. It's yeah, and wrote it. It's a half-page, five-panel comic strip. Willie is giving one of his GI toy soldiers orders. When the toy doesn't obey, Willie carries it inside and places it in front of a dish-filled sink, telling Dilly that this soldier is now going to get KP duty. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll just say, Willie and Dilly, not even silly. I don't like these old humor strips. <laughs> Standard 60s meh comic. <laughs> yep. So something a little more entertaining and educational and up Rich's alley is right up next. And this epic particular one, it's called American Military Ornaments. Two panels portraying 1800s ornaments. The Irish Harbinaria Greens of... Philadelphia, by the way, we're recording this on St. Patrick's Day, so here's to you. And a militia rifleman cap plate. These features were common in the war books, running from a half page to a two page spread, covering military units, weapons, and the like. It's a fast and easy way for kids to learn a little bit of history, actually. Um, as I've said before, I'm in the 104th Division, and they have two pages in Our Army at War 101 covering their Second World War duty. I'll, I've included them in the album. Yeah, I was really I was really glad to see this little thing on American military ornaments, of which I know nothing, and also was a nice antidote to the Willie and Dilly that I had just endured. So Same page. <laughs> yeah, again, <laughs> I, half, would, half. I would really like this kind of real-world stuff to be in the Weird War Tales book, too, to have that mix, like the battle albums and maybe a sprinkling of stuff like this to mix it up. But, you know, that we're over here in GI combat, so I get a dose of that anyway. And speaking of things inside this issue, we're going to take a look at our spotlighted ads for GI Combat number 112. So for me, I mean, there's an ad about using Silly Putty to make a bathtub toy. That was kind of a new and somewhat disturbing one for me. I mean, I, I never used Silly Putty to do that as a kid. Printing cartoons off of your comic books. And that's like, the paper with yeah, the acid content. making little bouncy balls or whatever. And that's about it. But for my ad, I got to go with, there's one that's for a hundred individual magnets. The look of amazement on the one kid's face is, is enough. But the sheer breathlessness of the rest of the ad copy is insane. Speaking of insane, it's like the insane clown posse went back and wrote this one. They have that one song where they're like, magnets, how the beep do they work? And with the state of comic book science at the time this book was published, these kids exposed to a hundred amazingly powerful magnets, they're either going to get superpowers or end up teleported to another dimension or something. I mean, I was just really blown away by the the sheer like huckster energy behind selling you uh, a packet of a hundred little rectangular magnets, nothing special. And they got them like stacked up in animal shapes and showing like the one kid has a magnet under the table, moving the one on top of it. And that's that the other kid looks utterly amazed by it. Like witchcraft. So that's my ad. You could get someone to write that copy for, Hey kid, here's a bag of magnets. I love it. Yeah. Actually that is a pretty interesting ad because it's, um, it's printed in a, in a landscape format not portrait. So you actually have to turn the comic book to get a, to get a good look. I don't even think they don't even do that anymore. Do they land landscape ads in comics? Uh, I don't even know what ads are in comics anymore. Like the, they're probably an ad for like a mortgage company because the only people buying them are our age. <laughs> Ooh, Joey doesn't have five dollars to spend on a comic book. What the yeah, hell? Yeah, <laughs> four dollars for for five breathless minutes of reading excitement. 
that's not happening. Yeah, there's probably ads for like, you know, the tub that, that's built so you can get out of it easily because your hips aren't so good anymore. You know, <laughs> like medic aid alert bracelets. I don't know. I don't read monthlies anymore. Oh man, so go ahead, man. There's there was there was a treasure trove in this issue. So yeah, there were there were there were a surprising amount of worthy ads. I mean, it's the 1960s. How can there not be? But man, I had to go with the monogram Fred Flypogger model kits by Stanley Mouse. There were three happy monster caricature kits that made the jump from paper to styrene. And you know, these it's, it's like a it looks like a stoned monster with like a disheveled mop of hair in his head his eyes are all kind of glazed over he's got you know sharp broken teeth and a red tongue and his goofy smile and flies are kind of like buzzing him around him like he hasn't taken a bath since you know the washington administration <laughs> and it's like greetings earth people hip cats and cool chicks my name is fred flypogger the good groover clancy went to the hobby shop to buy something that's fun to build here sonny is a plastic assembly kit that'll make you flip your lid tough building a mouse kit by monogram and the kid's head is exploding off the spray <laughs> look at it. you have fred flypogger as flip out the beachcomber surfer again as speed shift it looks like he's supposed to be some type of biker so he's holding an eight ball bomb and everything and then uh and be sure to dig Fred as Super Fuzz, you know, a cop in a pot rod or something, waving a club with a with a nail through it, and you know, running somebody over. I mean, take your pick. Flip out, best surfer of all. Speed shift, fastest shift in the West. Super Fuzz, the friendly lawman and his supercharged prowl rod, six and a half inches high, each only one dollar. I got the strong idea. These have a fanatic niche market there's nothing on ebay but you know these things have to go for hundreds of bucks if you can find these things anymore oh yeah that that ad not only is it just really cool looking and and just fun to just even listen to somebody describe it but man like i like the vibe of this mid-60s counterculture that bubbles up by the time you get to super fuzz the friendly lawman who's like running somebody over and has a spiked club in his hand like huh yeah, a little bit of the uh, anti-authority vibe coming out there, you know? Little tiny flavor of that. So that that was really cool for me to see. It reminds me, there were these, um, and this is off, you know, obviously off script, man, but there was this kind of wave in the 70s even, and I forget what they were called, like the Groovy Ghoulies or something, like these like mutants and hot rods with the stick shift up in the air, you know, and all deformed and hunched down and like huge exhaust pipes coming off them. This reminded me of, of that stuff that I used to see when I was a kid. So I don't know, maybe this is like any bells for me. But. Yeah, it might just be something that was like a, you could get like iron-ons of them and stuff and there were model kits and all that. But anywho... We are going to move past these ads and go to the little section that we like to call Got Any Last Words? I went digging into my GI combat archives looking for a single story issue where the general was fighting either Attila the Hun or Alaric the Visigoth for maximum weirdness. I decided that this was the best one. There are plenty of other worthy issues in the big five. We'll do more of them in due time. If we do our fighting forces one, I got one picked out already. <laughs> I mean, how can we not? These are just too much fun. Also, since the Twilight Zone makes frequent appearances and mentions here, I would be completely remiss to not mention the episode from season five. The seventh is made up of phantoms where three National Guardsmen in a Stuart tank somehow cross a temporal boundary and find themselves involved in the Battle of Little Bighorn. 
custom-made reference for this issue. Yeah, I mean, finally, we we have beaten our listeners to the Twilight Zone reference. I, I think that we deserve a treat. So, and speaking of treats, I found this to be a very enjoyable issue, as I'm sure some of you have picked up on already. Uh, certainly more ghostly than the last time we visited this crew with the Checkered Chums over at the Checkered Pass podcast. You should all listen to them. They are great. They have about back- 20 episodes doing war comics, people. So that's your groove. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they, um, they are covering all the go-go check covered DC comics that came out when a couple of years period there. So that was across the entire line. So war comics and everything, they are covering them. The backup story, as you all just heard, was a huge blast for me too. So I rate this issue pretty darned highly. This is right now the GI combat issue to beat for me, but I haven't read as many of them as Rich has. So with the last words out of the way, over at the Dead Letter Office, this is the part at the top where I mention redbubble.com, the sound of wind in a ghost town. Tumbleweeds. Yes, tumbleweeds <laughs> going by. Like this redbubble.com, our dear listeners know by now, is where you can go and buy merchandise with our freaking awesome logo drawn by Bill Walco of the Hero Business. You can get it put on anything you want magnets, hats, corona masks, COVID masks, t shirts, mugs. And if you have an idea, let us know. We'll change you- it, we'll put it on there. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll order it because so far, Rich and I are the only people who have ordered anything. So you can also be one of the founding members of the I Got Some Weird Warriors podcast merch club. We will officially mention uh, welcome to the cast, you know, like, like Luke, Jack and Eddie and uh, Jason Zeller. <laughs> yeah, guys, like speaking of ways to reach out to us, if you buy some of this merch, take a picture of yourself with it, post it on social media, email it to us, whatever. And that will get us to put you in the Hall of Fame here on the show. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's an idea I just came up with. Like, woo, I'm a genius. Because, like, you know, tons of other shows do stuff like that. So, over on Twitter, where we are at Weird War Pod, we had people stop by to say hey and give us some likes and stuff. People like FPI Glasgow, Jeremy Floyd, Martin Gray, Dallin Baumgarten, Roger Preeb, Professor Frenzy, Liz Ann Oswalt, Wayne Burroughs, Chris Lydon, David Steele of the Earth 2 podcast, the vintage Gothic Dame, and Billy Delicious, Doc Strange himself, stopped by to say hi. Over on Facebook, we got Luke Ed stopping by, Herschel Memis, David Steele stopping by again, Billy D, and our buddy Lee Sullivan, who was in a letters page of Weird War Tales that we just covered. And uh, we actually got some conversation going on over on the Facebook page. Our buddy Tim DeForest stopped by to say another great episode. I was a little more bothered about the predictability of the ending of Death Watch, but I agree the art was superb and Max's point about most of us now being more genre savvy than those reading the story in 1973 is a fair one. I immediately thought of the Twilight Zone episode. There we go. (laughs) (laughs) The Purple Testament broadcast in 1960 while you were discussing the issue and I was looking forward to looking brilliant by bringing it up. Then someone beat me to it when you read the emails you received. Darn. It's a great TZ episode, though. And Tim provides us with a link to a YouTube-hosted Twilight Zone episode. And Bill Mooney comes in on that conversation to reply to Tim, and he says, you're absolutely correct concerning that coincidental similarity. Arnold Drake was such a good writer that I don't want to call him out on it. 
But did you notice that another DC staff writer who shall remain nameless seemed to have clearly been influenced by any number of Twilight Zone episodes? There were also a couple of Weird War Tales stories in which the writer seems to have been directly inspired by a couple episodes of The Prisoner. Great minds think alike, I guess. Uh, Bill's being generous there. These guys were swiping. They were on deadlines. Like, did, no one was paying attention back then. I mean... Original content? Come on. He took a, the <clears throat> end of The Watchmen by Alan Moore was lifted from an episode of The Outer Limits, and he admitted it probably before the issue was even out. I don't know. Like, comics used to be on something called deadlines, you know? <laughs> like, I know everything's just late. late. <laughs> yeah, everything's just late now, but they didn't used to have that luxury. It was just like, okay, you can't do it. You're off the book. See ya. You know, come back next week. So then we have Martin Gray stopping by on the Facebook page, and he had a little conversation with Rich, which I am going to let him relate to you all. Yes, Martin came at us with, thanks for another lovely listen. Best story this issue was the voodoo one. Or maybe the Twilight Zone homage. Weirdly, tomorrow is the anniversary of the 1955 death of Sir Alexander Fleming, discoverer of penicillin. There were no reports of green faces. But not the first one. It's far too predictable. I do love me some Don Perlin, though. How do you lads feel about people who go to war, perhaps conscripted, and just can't cope? As you said, there was a very judgmental narrator this time, but surely condemning someone as a coward for not having the capacity to deal with the horrors of war is a bit much. Even Charles Atlas on page two was pushing the manly bit. And I responded, I'll preface this statement with the reminder that I have never been under fire. That said, I've always gotten a little peeved when I listen to wannabe warriors loudly proclaiming what they would have done. I have seen some truly horrible statements aimed at Corporal Upham in the movie Saving Private Ryan when he freezes on the stairwell as Private Mellish loses his fight to the death upstairs. Everyone dreams of being a hero, earning a medal, maybe being gloriously wounded in the shoulder. Reality is different. It doesn't matter how much training you have. Until the lead starts flying, you have no idea how you'll respond. Guys that are heroes in training have turned into cowards. And guys that are disasters in training have turned into Audie Murphy. There's also why you're a coward. Maybe you've been on the line too long and have post-traumatic stress. Who knows? Maybe Price has been doing his duty honorably for months, but that dream just unhinged him. Stranger things have happened. Just my two cents. And Martin's responded with, and a valuable two cents at that. I look at what's going on with the citizens of the Ukraine and think, there but for the grace of God. So brave. If I'd ever joined the forces, I'd likely be permanently on whatever the equivalent of KP is these days. I cannot turn off my big mouth. My big brother managed 25 years in the RAF, though, so someone in the family has been useful. If called on, I'd hope I'd keep my nerve. But as you say, who knows? And I, that was a really, really good exchange, I have to admit, that uh, Martin and I had. That was I enjoyed that uh, immensely. Oh, yeah. Martin is a, a heck of a, a commentator and a journalist himself. So, you know, as far as being useful, he's, he's he's contributing to society more so than like I am. That's for sure. But, you know, that's a low Let's bar. Let's do a podcast. <laughs> Let's do a podcast about comic books. All right. Hey, hey, hey. So we have our, our friend uh, Lee Sullivan comes in on Facebook to, to talk at us a bit. And this was about the episode where we covered an issue with Richard Lee Sullivan, the man himself had a fan letter in that issue. So Lee says, Wow, thanks for the shout out. I stand by my comments from 1973. Haha, <laughs> made my day. Great podcast, y'all. And uh, we say, set in your ways. I respect that. This was one of our best ones yet. And Lee says, by the way, I actually had one of those MPC pirate models. You know, 
guys, the Zap Action Pirates of the Caribbean models we've been talking about a couple of times on the show. It's as closest I got to Disneyland until my late 30s when I made my wife ride Pirates of the Caribbean with me like a dozen times in a row. I asked him, was the model as cool as we really, really hope it was? And Lee gives us a picture of the one that he had, Dead Men Tell No Tales. And he says, yeah, it was pretty cool. And he tells us the Zap Action was uh, powered by a rubber band. So someone who actually had one of these and knows how they functioned. <laughs> so, you know, the magic of rubber band action is what powered these models. And that's just cool. I love when, as we've often asked, a reader out there had one of these things that, that we're so excited about in the ads and can tell us about it firsthand. So just super cool. And uh, over on our Gmail address, which is weirdwarriorspodcast at gmail.com, we got a letter from the prolific Jason Zeller, who tells us, uh, he starts out and he says, Dear Dead Letter Office, this was a very solid issue from beginning to end. The cover is very classic, and it really makes you feel for the French soldier going into almost certain death. My favorite ad was the in-house ad of the House of Mystery limited collector's edition with a skeletal hand reaching out to beckon the poor children into the haunted house. I think that was similar to the cover used in House of Mystery 174, which I believe was when Joe Orlando took over the book and turned it back into a horror mystery book. Death Watch was my favorite of the three stories. It was a great, compelling tale, and I liked the way the panels were put together. It reminded me of certain types of nightmares I have had over the years where I tried to run away and hide from either monsters or some disaster, but can never seem to get far enough away. I think we have read or watched these types of stories before, as it seems really familiar. A similar idea to the before-mentioned An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge by Ambrose Bierce. Someone thinks he has escaped, but actually, he is already dead. Operation Voodoo had solid art and an interesting tit-for-tat story. I did expect the French general to get it, just not sure how it was going to happen. It was not surprising that using Voodoo backfired on him. The first panel on page two was an excellent action panel that made you feel the chaos of the battle. Jason then comments on the final story and issue and says, I did like Death is a Green Man, but I agree with you guys. The title left a little to be desired. And uh, Rich notes that he missed a chance at a Martian joke here on the episode. His second panel on page two was, ouch, that must have been a jolt of electricity. I bet he was seeing more than just green dead men after that shocking treatment. That looked extremely painful with live wires directly on his chest. Ironically, this plot was also very similar. Ah, uh-huh. To the Twilight yeah. Zone episode, The Purple <laughs> Testament, where a soldier was seeing which soldiers would die by a light on their face, and he eventually saw a light on his own face when looking in a mirror. Max actually read a letter from me this episode about issue 15 with a similar plot device, and we heard Lee Sullivan complaining about the fact that Jason beat him to it. As for the penicillin allergy, that would be terrible. The doctor just gives him a needless treatment, and he dies from an ironic anaphylactic allergic reaction to it. Yeah, the devil may care medicine of the field office there. So as a side note, Jason says, I also felt like I received a lot of needless penicillin shots or injections as a kid. What we used to call the peanut butter shot as they hurt so bad due to being such a thick substance. It did not matter if I had a sore throat, ear pain, coughing or fever of unknown origin. The visit would usually end in a penicillin peanut butter injection in my backside. Did you guys ever receive this kind of frequency of penicillin injections as kids. And that's Jason. And, you know, uh, no, 
I do not I, remember getting me off me neither. Yeah. So I don't know if you were in a special focus group out there, Jason, <laughs> like, like you might have a class action lawsuit on your hands <laughs> or if anyone out there remembers penicillin shots the way Jason did, where they were just throwing them in you. Maybe that comic wasn't as off base as we thought. <laughs> Maybe they were just like, I don't know. You don't look good. Pow, here's some penicillin. Back then it was penicillin and in the 1990s, 2000s, it's freaking opioids. So, you know, time marches forward. Yeah, yeah, good point, man. But yeah, Jason, <laughs> you might want to talk to a lawyer. I don't know. So... <laughs> So that's the letters. Uh, Rich has some stuff to hit you with before the teaser here, and I'm gonna yep. I'm gonna give you all a break. <laughs> and hey, we have our first ever review posted on the Apple Podcast page, February 9th by Bucky seven four nine. Sorry, I just found it this week. Five stars. Thrilling days of yesteryear. I've read some more comics, but the energy and fun the hosts put into the show comes through with each episode. Also, if I may make a request of a special mission someday in the future, how about doing a Rogue Trooper story or Blackhawk? Signed, Jumpin' Jamie Jr. It's like, well, if I can find a Blackhawk story that is sufficiently weird, I will certainly take it under advisement. Truth be told, you know, Blackhawk was just, you know, party wants to think it's, it's it would fall under the DC War banner, but it doesn't. And maybe perhaps for that reason, it, it's a character I never really got into. I bought a couple of them. Eh. And I just never ran with it. So, yeah. Talk about a series where you can pick your tone, though. Like, I am a little more familiar with Blackhawk. And uh, the Earth 2 podcast has done some Blackhawk stories. And they've been covering the poor guys. The time when the Blackhawks were being turned into a superhero group because, you know, no one cared about war comics anymore or whatever. Just awful, awful stuff. I think they enjoy it more than I do. But, uh, you know, but Blackhawks, you can have like the tone of their early books, which was more typical aviation, military adventure stuff. Then this really awkward period in the 60s where they tried to make them hip. And then you got the Howard Chaikin miniseries in the 80s, which was like adults only. (laughs) So Blackhawks is, you know, pick your poison. We can do it. You know, whatever flavor you're looking for. So (laughs) I'm just psyched. I I never mentioned, hey, leave us a review or whatever. It's just cool to see someone out there throwing us five stars on Apple Podcasts. That wasn't me because I gave us a five star rating early on and didn't write a review. That was just, to, you. <laughs> just to see if they would let me do it. Let's just see a real one up there. So. It's like liking your own post, guy. <laughs> yeah, I have no shame. You know me. Come on. When am I going to grow some of that? <laughs> so with all that out of the way, that brings the dead letter office to a close. Before we wrap things up here, Rich is going to hit you with the teaser for the next episode. Back to basics. Weird War Tales number 25. It's the name of the show after all. Voodoo, again, Invisible Nazis, Haunted Mansions, again, we're one-fifth through the title and aren't bored yet. If you're not bored either, tune in or don't. We won't know. Yeah, we won't know because I don't know how to make sense of the download numbers and I don't care about them. So <laughs> We're doing this for us. <laughs> we're doing this for us, you know, or we're, we're really psyched that people enjoy it. But hey, you know the drill, people. I have been Max. He has been Rich. We have been the Weird Warriors. This is the Weird Warriors podcast, and we promise to make war. No more.